Welcome to the Road to Success podcast. Today's episode is proudly brought to you by Celebrity Speakers New Zealand. They are Aotearoa's foremost professional speakers and entertainment agency and have been for over 30 years. Now, today, my guest is Dr. Farah Palmer. Now, she is one of Celebrity Speakers' top keynote speakers. So if you or your organization is interested in having her at your next event or any of the other speakers that they work with, then please just head to celebritiespeakers.co.nz and inquire with the friendly team. Until then, enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with New Zealand rugby icon, Dr. Farah Palmer. Dr. Farah Palmer, thank you very much for doing this. No, you're welcome. You know, it's quite exciting to have to share something about myself. Yeah, yeah. Have you have you have you been on a podcast before at all? Uh, I may have tried to help out uh, Tana Umanga, who is starting a new business as well. So yeah, but that was that's probably my only other time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, hey, it's absolutely great to have you. And um, uh, yeah, I'd like to start, I guess, by talking a little bit about you and your background because look, a lot of people are probably going to know your name, but they may not know um, you know uh, everything about you, and so. I've done a bit of research, and if I'm honest, you come across as incredibly humble, and I would ask you to do it, but I feel like you might leave a few things out. Can I please have a go at giving a 15-second synopsis of your career to date? Oh, go for it if you can do it, and I'll see whether any of it's truthful. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right, here I go. So uh, you're a member of the Black Ferns from 1995 to 2006, and you captained the team to three World Cup wins in 98, 02, and 06. In 2007, you became an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit and were inducted into the World Rugby Hall of Fame in 2014. Uh, The New Zealand Women's Provincial Championship was renamed the Farrah Palmer Cup in your honour. You have a PhD in sociology of sport. You were the first woman to be appointed uh, to the New Zealand Rugby Board, and you're now an Associate Dean at Massey university and somewhere in there you managed to raise two children as well does that sort of encapsulate most things yeah you, you did a pretty good job there yeah I've been I've been really lucky I think I've I've been riding this wave um, of interest in women's rugby and yeah it's been amazing the opportunities that I've had as a result of, of putting on a rugby jersey and some rugby boots and getting out there yeah, well, it's, it's probably a bit more than just that. I think obviously you you know you, you've 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 had success in a, in a number of different um, sort of areas of your life, and um, there's obviously you know whether it's in the sporting field or academic, and even in your, your governance roles as well. But it seems that um, you know you've obviously. Um, you know, done a, not, a number of things really well and you do a number of things really well. And so I'd like to sort of, um, you know, get into those, um, you know, as, as we get into the interview. But, um, you know, when you list those things off, you know, it's, it's not a bad CV. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, I've always, as from a young age, wanted to do things like you have an option, don't you? You can either get involved or you can't. And if there was anything going, I grew up in a very small village in the King Country and, you know, we had a Highland dancing, tap dancing teacher, for instance. And I was like, yep, I'm in. I'll sign up for that like every other young girl wanted to do that. So I did that. And that kind of taught me about the competition, about discipline, about turning up regularly and uh, giving giving things 100%. Um, 
you know, and I and anything going at school, I was in. You know, we had a choir, we uh, had a kapahaka group, we had sports teams. So I was one of those people that would rather be involved than watch from the sidelines. I wasn't amazing at things. Like, I don't think I ever stood out as a natural athlete, but I was definitely a um, a trier and um, would really kind of give 100%. And, and that's probably an attitude that I've carried through in my studies. Uh, when I was studying and I discovered rugby, I just kind of said, right, I'm going to give this a go. And uh, when opportunities came up to take on leadership roles, it's like, okay, I'll, I'll say yes and try and figure out what I'm doing while I'm while I'm going along. Yeah, and, and was that you know that sort of attitude? You know, that's a you know that's a key fundamental to to anyone that sort of does well that ability to jump in and try something and, and give something a go. Is that something that was sort of did you, was that come naturally to you, or is that something that was sort of ingrained and instilled to you by your parents? Do you think? Oh, look, I think. Uh, my parents are very different, which I always find quite fascinating. They've had a tumultuous relationship throughout my life. So I grew up with my mum and my Māori grandparents, and I think they taught me about being um, hardworking and to be resilient and to be resourceful. So whatever resources you had, you made the most of them. Um, my mum was just the hardest working person I know. Uh, she didn't complain. She just got on with it. Um, I don't think I was praised a lot, but I was definitely loved. Uh, and then I met my dad, who's Pākehā, when I was seven, and we moved on to his uh, sheep and cattle farm. So I went from being in a very Māori kind of environment to a isolated farming environment where it was just me and my parents and a culture shock, you know. So I had to learn to adapt and I had to learn to adjust and then I still learned some work ethic, being on a farm and having to get out there and help, you know, chip the thistles and move the sheep and get in the yards and be be the wool handler of, with my dad. And I learned all of those skills. So I think those were just, was just get on with it. That kind of get on with it attitude just came through in my upbringing with my mum and my dad and my grandparents. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly a um, you know it's a tough one now as well, isn't it? With children, I know you've got children yourself, obviously, and um, you know there's a balance, isn't there, of trying to encourage them to get on with it and to and to you know work hard and to um, you know try hard and not give up, but at the same time you know care for them and love them and and yes. um, you know you want them to be happy and healthy, but also sort of successful in, in whatever they're trying to to accomplish. Yeah, and it is, a, it is a balancing act. And I think back to my parents, and I don't think they ever really were that engaged on the sideline. I'm probably the, the complete opposite. My children tell me I'm embarrassing. But I'm kind of like cheering them on and kind of giving them the thumbs up. And, and I think back to my parents and just having them there. They didn't have to say anything, but just having them there, having them take me to the games, doing that kind of background stuff, I knew that that was their way of showing me support. Yeah, yeah. And so you're obviously pretty sporty from a young age. You know, it sounds like you were sort of active, uh, you know, with with a, a farm life, but also um, you seem to be playing sport and, and sort of getting your, 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 getting into whatever your, whatever sort of, you know, pause popping up. Was that right? Yeah, I loved being, as I said, I loved participating. So I would write, I found it quite boring watching. Uh, so I just wanted to get involved. And I don't, I think I was more of a, give a 100% person rather than the most skilled person on the team. Uh, you know, I, I actually grew up 
playing netball with Jenny May Coffin, uh, now Jenny May Clarkson, and she was a talented athlete, you know, like I could see she had some talent and she had the attitude as well. So I was tended to be kind of like the consistent player. But, yeah, I just thought, why would I want to watch when I could participate cross-country? I'm going to run, even though it'll probably hurt. I'm going to take part in cross-country. Athletics day, I'm going to give 100% in athletics day. Swimming, I'll give 100% in swimming. And we had a swimming club. We had a 25-metre outside pool in Pio Pio, and we had a swimming club, so I joined that. So that's a, I just would rather be involved than stand on the sidelines, and I think that's been the thing that has maybe made me a great captain and been kind of put into those leadership roles because mm-hmm. my attitude more than more than the talent and skill that I bring. Yeah, no, well, that that seems to be synonymous with with m- most successful people, to be honest. And is that it's it's attitude. You know, what is that? There's the quote that um, that that um, hustle beats talent when talent won't hustle. You know, it's yeah. about that sort of ability to to, to get involved. And in. and sometimes it's um, there's a there's a really good book called Mindset, but I think it's Carol. Dweck and 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 uh, in it she talks about um, you know it can actually be quite dangerous um, for a young child that's really really talented to start with because they um, you know you grow up knowing that you're really good and then when you know you know you're really good you don't have to try as hard in order to achieve something um, but if you grow up sort of um, you know without a, a huge amount of natural talent but uh, you know enough of that sort of underlying talent to be able to be good at things but then you recognise that. You get better at it when you actually work harder. That yes. seems to be the nicer balance, rather than just being absolutely in flooded, uh, you know, uh, flooded with with natural ability. But obviously, for you, there was um, you know some natural ability, uh, particularly with rugby. When when did you realise that um, you know you were actually going to you know, really good at this? You know, obviously, you were trying lots of different things, and you were, had this attitude of I want to give everything a go, and I want to you know jump in. I don't want to sit on the sidelines. But there, there's obviously a point. You know, when I read out this, some of your achievements at the start, there is clearly you're very very good. So when was the point when you started to figure out that hey, like there, there might be something more to this than me just giving it a go? Yeah, I think I really kind of fell in love with rugby and I think it was a combination of the fact that you have to be totally in the moment with rugby. You know, you have to have your your wits about you and and I've never ever felt so physically exhausted uh, and mentally kind of challenged at the same time. Like, and the teamwork and the you have to concentrate on your own, what you're doing in your own role, but also you've got people around you. And I'm, I'm not that big... Um, I think I'm about, at the time that I was playing, I would have been about 65 to 70 kgs kind of in that time, and I was playing prop. And I remember one coach said to me, I think you're too small to play prop, but I think you'd make a great hooker. And so he had that that foresight to kind of encourage me to change positions, and I moved into hooker. And that's where I really kind of took off as a hooker. You had to throw the ball in. You could kind of be a little bit looser, play out on the on the flank a little bit more, on the wing sometimes. Uh, so that's when I really kind of thought, okay, I can do this and I actually could maybe take this to the next level. So I started going to the gym. I started training, doing extra trainings, started kind of asking for more tips and advice and, and that kind of thing. So that's where it really took off for me. Um, and this yeah. was in Otago when you were studying, correct? Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. And were you working as well or were you just sort of studying and, and playing? 
oh, no, I was trying to work. I was very fortunate. I got a scholarship. So there was a scholarship in the uh, 90s to try and get more Māori to become phys ed teachers. So it was a Hillary Commission a scholarship and I got one and Waimarama Tomanu was one of the people that delivered the scholarships and she scared the bejesus out of me and and would come and check up on us and make sure that we were doing our studies. So I was really lucky I had that but then you know, I topped it up by doing part-time jobs. I worked at a, um, when I was doing my PhD, I worked at a restaurant called Umbrellos. I I was one of those people that kind of sold you beer in a liquor store to try and get you to buy all the, the alcohol. So I did whatever I could to get through. So yeah, I was working, I was um, studying, and I was and I was really trying to to study hard. And I was also just enjoying my rugby and really thriving in terms of trying to get to the next level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, again, it's that attitude of sort of jumping in and having a go at everything because, you know, you're, it's obviously, obviously you're, you're doing your rugby training and you're, there's a study but you've got someone keeping an eye on them, making sure that you, that you are you are studying properly but you're also, you know, working in the background and, and you know, the extra training for rugby as well. And, and what did it look like when you, you, you did make it to the next level? Yeah, so I think for me it was a progression that kind of crept up on me. So I made the Otago uh, B team, I think, initially, and then I made the Otago A team as a reserve, and then I got into the team and was one of the starting lineup. And then we were really lucky. We had Sue Garden Bishop, who um, was was a Black Fern at one, but a great coach as well and a real champion and one of those people that would just try and make things happen. She realised that a lot of us in the South Island weren't getting seen by the New Zealand rugby selectors at the time who were all based in the North North Island. So she arranged fundraisers to get us to go on a Northern tour and um, because of her, a lot of our Otago players got seen by the New Zealand selectors and I was one of them. So uh, we went on our northern tour. We played in Whanganui and Manawatu uh, and Wellington. And, yeah, I got that's when I got seen and uh, got to go to a um, New Zealand rugby kind of selection weekend in Puriru at the police college and got named as a um, reserve hooker uh, in 1995 and was blown away. You know, here I was sitting here with these amazing athletes who I knew played for New Zealand, and I was one of them, and I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's um, it's a, I mean, it's 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 a brilliant story, and obviously, you know, as uh, you've smart people around you to make sure that you know, you're getting seen and stuff. Now, um. We, so you become, you know, obviously you become a black fern. Um, are you getting paid at any stage during this time? Or is, is, it, is it, are you working to, to allow yourself to be able to, to live? Yeah. So remember, I'm a student. So I probably was used to, to living on the smell of an oily rag. Uh, and when we first started, I actually remember this, we used to get $30 a day. And it would be delivered to us by the manager in an envelope. So if we were together for two weeks, we'd get $30 a day for two weeks. Now, I thought I was, I'd made it. I thought I was rich. As a student, I was like, sweet, you know, you get all your laundry done for you. You get free accommodation, free food. You get to play sport. You know, this is pretty sweet. Um, We got gear. 
Uh, I must be honest, it was usually leftover gear from the men's teams. So we would often have size triple XL t- shirts and, and tracksuit pants, and but we would get boots and, you know, and a bag and we'd get all these extra things that we didn't have before. So I think we were all quite grateful at that time. You know, it probably would not sit well these days, but we were just really grateful and excited that we were in a New Zealand team and, and getting getting something so to go from $30 a day to now the players are are fully contracted it's taken a while so uh, yeah we we are moving on and the expectations have grown yeah yeah expectations have have certainly changed and and that's a um, you know it's a it's a it must have been it's almost simpler then you know and just by the way you're talking it you know like yeah. everyone's just so happy to be there everyone's just thrilled to have that 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 um i guess because it comes down to expectations isn't it there's this like you know, i'm just i'm you know i'm my expectation is that i'm in a cold flat probably in dunedin you know working a couple <laughs> of jobs and flat out and all of a sudden i'm with all my friends doing what i love and they give me 30 dollars a day <laughs> i don't have any yeah. expenses and we also had um teachers and they would get time off so they you know their schools would be very under standing and allow them to leave without pay or sometimes or leave with pay. We had people in the police force. Uh, we had people who worked for New Zealand Post. We had um, physiotherapists. So we had people that were working, but their their organisations or their jobs were very understanding and allowed them to go away and then have their jobs when they came back. Mm-hmm. You know, now nowadays that there are more games so it's not so um, easy to do that. So having to go either semi-professional, fully professional was just essential in this day and age. Yeah. I actually remember um, I used to work uh, with alongside Richard Lowe and he told me a funny story once that he was, uh, this is before that um, was professional and, and he said that we would get paid and um, obviously there was probably some form of allowance, but they'd get tickets to the game. And so, um, and the, they would go and sell them, and that's how they would, um, you know, that was how they would generate some cash from what they were doing. And he said that, you know, if you didn't have, if you couldn't sell them beforehand, because obviously that was before the days, you couldn't just put them on Trade Me or Facebook or something like that. And if you didn't yeah. know enough people that wanted to go, or you didn't have enough people in that city, he literally said he would walk around outside the stadium before the game, trying to hock off tickets. You know, can you imagine a player, an athlete in any sport, in in twenty twenty two, walking around outside the sta- stadium and then gear just trying to hock off a, a ticket or two to, to generate some cash yeah yeah that, I can imagine that well, I have seen um, women standing outside games with their buckets trying to raise money for their local club or something like that so there's always that thing in the back of your mind that I'm so grateful that I've had this opportunity how can I how can I help other people but no I never had to hock off any um, tickets <laughs> yeah, and so um, so so you you're, you're in the team, and then um, you I think it's you're only in the team for maybe a couple of years before you become captain. Is that right? Yeah. So ninety five, I was a reserve, and then ninety six, I got to play, and then ninety seven, I was asked to captain the team. Yeah, and what was that like? Getting asked to do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was quite interesting watching Ruhe de Mont, who is the most recently named captain of the Black Ferns, and she was ex saying how she felt shocked and disbelief and thought it was a joke. And that just kind of took me back to my time when I was asked if I would be the captain. And I literally in my head was going, oh, no, why would you want to do this job? And my mouth said, yeah, 
Yeah, <laughs> and then I just remember them leaving and I that's when it kind of the anxiety or the panic set in and I remember just kind of sitting in my room just freaking out. Um, it was a huge honour. Um, I'm very much a self-doubt kind of person so I will wonder why did I get it because I do think there are lots of people that could have done it and for some reason maybe they were injured, maybe they... They had other commitments, and for some reason, the selectors thought that I would I was the captain for that time. And so that year was just a huge learning curve in terms of what it meant to go from just being a player to being a captain, and that was on a, yeah, I was a, mm. on a bit of a journey in terms of what that meant. Yeah, I mean, have you heard of, and I'm not saying this was you at any means, have you heard of imposter syndrome before at all? Yes, definitely. Yeah, did that feel, I mean, I've 100% had this and, um, you know, just from what you're saying there, it kind of it kind of sounds, you know, what you're describing almost similar. Would that, is, that, is that fair to say? Yeah, imposter syndrome big time, um, especially because you tend to compare yourself to maybe the previous leader or previous captain. And Leonardine Simpson-Brown was an amazing captain very, very different to me. Uh, so I was thinking, oh, shoot, you know, I can't, do I have to try and be like Lena Dean or do I have to try and lead in a way that feels authentic to me? So I had I had imposter syndrome all the time. Like even when I made the team, I felt like an imposter. But I kind of quickly get over those kind of feelings and think right now that that whole mindset of get on with it and do what you can and do it to the best of your ability sets in. So when I kind of got over myself and said, right, now you're the captain, how can you lead? And I think in that first year I made heaps of mistakes. I did a lot of trying to emulate the previous captain and realised that didn't work and that I had to try and be more authentically myself and a better version of myself. Um, for the team. Mm. Had you had much leadership experience prior to that? Like obviously you'd played in a number of different teams and, but you know, in any role, you know, in, in your life, had you had you been um, in a leadership position prior to that? Yeah, I had been captain of the Pio Pio College teams that I'd been involved with and then I also took on a role as the student rep for the Board of Trustees at Pio Pio. I was a leader uh, for the Kapahaka group. I'm the oldest in my family, so of four girls, so I was kind of born with that kind of bossiness, I suppose, in some ways. Uh, so, yes, I had been in leadership roles but never at that level where I felt like, oh, gosh, there's a lot riding on this in terms of trying to do my best for the black ferns. Mm-hmm. And and you end up, you know, you ended up, you know, capturing the team for you know uh, three World Cup wins and you know a huge number of years after that. Did it? Did you get to the point that it was um, you felt like not at home in the role, but like that you didn't feel like like you had talked, like you just spoke about how you sort of felt like you were sort of trying to emulate other people and you sort of felt a bit out of place and, and, and did it get to the point where you, you felt like that this is where I belong, this is what I should be doing? Yes, but I never felt completely comfortable, I think I would say. Like every year, that's the thing with a, if you're a captain of a rugby team, every year the team is different. So you will a new set of players will come in, and maybe the coaching um, and management team will slightly change. So you have to kind of adapt and adjust and think, what can I do to get the best out of this team, or what are the circumstances this year? 
And I do remember I did kind of probably get into a flow of, of being uh, the captain when Daryl Suasua was the coach and we kind of had a, a good relationship and a good understanding. And then when he stepped down as coach and uh, Jed Rollins came in, I kind of struggled a little bit because his expectations were different and his what he, he was a little bit more relaxed in some aspects of the team environment. So I really struggled with that. And somebody gave me, my manager at the time, gave me the book, Who Moved My Cheese, yes. um, yep. which really was, I, I thank you for it now because it made me realise that I have to change. Uh, this is a new kind of environment. So I need to either dig my heels in and not change or try and figure out how what's my place in this new environment. So yeah, that was really helpful and helped me to adjust so I don't think I ever felt completely comfortable, but I did feel that I I was of value as a captain. Yeah, that's a great book as well, Who Moved My Cheese. I think I've got a copy behind <laughs> yeah. me somewhere. There's a couple in that series, actually. Um, yeah. yeah, and and look, you know, you went on to, you know, play for the side for 11 years. You know, what was, you know, I don't want to ask a question as, uh, as broadly as what was your leadership style, but, you know, over that time, how did you, what, what were you doing when things were going well as a leader? When things were going well, I was probably just trying to make sure that we didn't rest on our laurels. And, and keep on our toes and keep our standards high. So uh, it was great that we were winning, but we didn't want to just win. We wanted to demonstrate to the world that this is the way we play rugby and that we are a team that is uh, respectful and professional. Like I think about 1998, we turned up to that World Cup and we were the only team that used to kind of do the carbo loading or had drink bottles. You know, nobody in 1998 kind of did that. Uh, and there was a lot of festivity kind of around 1998, and we were like, no, no alcohol, we're not doing that. I know we're here to win. And I think other teams were kind of looking at us going, oh, what's up with them? But but they started to change as well because we set the what we think was the standard for what we expected in, in a Women's Rugby World Cup, and other teams were definitely kind of on that same path as well. So I think... My leadership style was about maintaining high standards, trying to get the best out of everybody around me. Um, I think I, I used to align what I would say to a player depending on their personality or what I thought would work for them. I don't think I'm very authoritarian. I'm very much a collaborative leader. I like to check and do a sense check with people that I trust to say, "Is this? are we on the right track? How's the team feeling? And then I'll say, okay, what do we need? So what's my approach going into this next game? Are we kind of like too hyped up and we need to chill out or are we too relaxed and we need to kind of ramp it up a bit? So I was always trying to keep my finger on the pulse of, of the team feel and what it was like. So I think I learned not to be authoritarian. I'm not authoritarian. Like Lena Dean was very much do this and everybody would jump. That didn't work for me. I was more of a inclusive, collaborative, acknowledging that I don't have all the answers, but together we could, we can achieve great things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously you were incredibly successful at what you did and you, and you found the, the best way to do your role, which from what you're saying is, you know, by being yourself, um, you know, when you look back on those, you know, 11 years, what are some of the, 
you know, highlights, and I don't mean highlights as in, you know, achievements, but what are you most proud of, 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 of you know, what what you did or what, what the group did or what, you know, collectively you were able to achieve in that time? Yeah, it's, that's a really good question. I think for me, uh, there are little things that still sit with me I'm really proud of, and I don't know whether it's adding to the culture of the team, Um and I'll just give you one that comes immediately to mind is we were going into the the last World Cup and we were thinking, gosh, how do you try and get people to get ready again and try and win the third World Cup? So we thought we would come up with our own haka. And so I approached uh, Fetu Tipawai, who had helped the Māori or Blacks with their haka, and I knew him personally. I talked to Panya Papa, who had helped us with our waiata, and I just got him to kind of come up with, with a haka. And they still do that haka today. And every time they do it, it just gives me a, a huge sense of pride that that's some a legacy that I have left with the team. And the meanings behind the haka in terms of acknowledging the strength of women, acknowledging that we're going out to the world and 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 sharing our culture with everyone. So that is something that I'm really proud of. I'm really proud of those moments where we had to dig deep on the rugby field and you go into a huddle and you just say one or two words that seem to pick everybody up. Um, we had a saying, for instance, that we BTB, which we used as our kind of theme for that, for that campaign. And BTB meant back-to-back World Cup. So this was leading into the 2002 World Cup, but also better than before. So everything we did, we tried to be better than before. And it was really great because you could just say BTB and everybody would realise that we've got a lift and we've got to be better than before. Better than before in our trainings, better than before in our um, eating better than before in our preparation and then on the field better than before. So there's just those little moments where you feel like you might have said something or you may have done something that turned things around that I'm that I'm really, really proud of. And I'm just really, really proud of where women's rugby has got to mm. uh, today, considering the $30 a day and the oversized uniforms and, you know, a minimum to now being recognised as the Black Ferns. You know, I think most people would know that the Black Ferns is the women's rugby team and and we've got people and athletes who are known by name like Portia Woodman, Kendra Coxedge. That's just an amazing achievement. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you, the obviously with the World Cup coming up and even I think back to the, um, you know, the, the Olympic with the Sevens team, you know, and like, and the the the, the whole country was involved in, in following that, that the, both the male and female sides. Um, it was, uh, it was fantastic. And what a change for you as well. And, and you know, I, I don't underestimate the the obviously you did an amazing job in the team, but you you managed to do a PhD, you know, essentially at the same time, you know, in between winning World Cups as well. Um, yes. So you've you've I think you graduated from that, and was that in, in two thousand? Yes. Yeah, 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 and so you, you you graduate with that, and then after that, um, and excuse my my ignorance here, uh, when do, when do you start getting paid as a, as a as a player? Like, do you go on to a, a contract after you finished, uh, you know, a, a paid term after that, or are you? How does that work? Um, for me personally, as a yeah, player, yeah. you're yeah. not someone after that. But you know, when obviously you you were getting more than thirty dollars a day at some time, um, yeah. you know, and it was it was your career. When did that start happening? 
I actually never got paid. Like I don't think I could say that I was semi-professional. We used to still get an allowance and then we kind of got on these short-term contracts. So towards the end of my career, we had these kind of short-term contracts that would go for the time that we were away, you know, which was much better paid. So it definitely helped. But I still had to have my other job. So that's when I kind of was working at Massey once I finished my PhD. And they were really accommodating and gave me time off. And then I would get this um, this contract with NZR. And it wasn't until recently that that kind of ramped up even more and they became semi-professional and fully professional. So, yeah, from the 2000 to 2006, it was just you got paid for the amount of the, the per diem that you were away. And it was much, much more than $30 a day. But it was still not enough for you to kind of like make a living out of it. So most of the players were either students or doing jobs that were more flexible in terms of letting them go. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, and and that's a, you know, maybe it's not, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, you're sort of... not sacrificing what you're doing, but you're 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 putting yourself in a position where you are able to go away, you know, every yes. six months or every you know a couple of times yeah. a year, whatever it is. Yeah. So whenever I would go for a job, that's what I would say. You know, I am going to be having to go away. Is this going to be a problem or not? Um, and also, it determined where I went. And nothing against Auckland, but when I finished my PhD, I did get a job offer up in Auckland and one in Palmerston North. And for some reason, I th- I thought, well, I'm still going to be playing rugby, so I don't want to be going to work in traffic and then having to try and get from work to rugby training and traffic. And so to me, that was just totally unappealing. But being in Palmerston North, where it's five, ten minutes to get anywhere and to get to rugby training, just was a big part of my decision making. So, yeah, I did really make my decisions about my careers and where I was going to live around rugby. Yeah, yeah. And I, I heard a story that you actually chose the name The Black Ferns. Yes, it was a collective effort. But as captain, we realised, you know, and you just sit around the, the breakfast table and people are talking and reading the papers back then because that's what we did. <laughs> and we were, I think we were in, um, we would have been in Barcelona, but everyone was calling us the Gal Blacks and the Lady Blacks in the media. And we were like, eh, who wants to be called the Gal Blacks and the Lady Blacks? And we decided if we don't actually be quite proactive, we're going to be labelled this and it's going to stick. So we had a team meeting, got everybody in the room, and we talked about all of the options. And I think that's what I'm really good at. I'm really good at listening to everyone's ideas and then trying to pull them together into something that's cohesive. And so somebody mentioned, well, black is what everyone associates with New Zealand sports teams and ferns is what we associate with female sports teams in New Zealand. And so why, you know, that was part of the discussion along with several other crazy ideas. (laughs) And those were the two that really stuck out to me were black ferns. So I said, why don't we call ourselves the black ferns? And that kind of like everyone discussed the, you know, the pros and cons and everyone thought, yeah, actually that, that's a good idea. So I think it was the Paul Holmes show that interviewed us and we decided to announce that we would like to call ourselves the black ferns uh, during the Paul Holmes show. Of course, we weren't officially allowed to call ourselves the Black Ferns until we went back to New Zealand. New Zealand Rugby did a marketing um, research and six months later, we uh, launched our official name um, in Parliament. Uh, 
and it was the black ferns. <laughs> yeah. Ask for so, forgiveness, not permission, right? That's the best way to go. <laughs> and we didn't care. We got there in the end and we officially got to call ourselves the black ferns. And the really cool thing is that the Māori um, name for the fern is Ngā Mamaku and the black fern in the forest is the matriarch of the of the forest. So that's really cool that we kind of aligned with that as well. Yeah, and you know, you talked before about legacy. You know, the haka being something that you helped, um, you know, define, but also the, you know, the naming of the team and the, the story behind it is, um, is, is, is um, you know, as much part of your legacy as, as anything else. And um, I, I did hear that uh, one of the other names that was thrown around was the Shiwis. Oh is that, yes, is that, is that true? <laughs> Melody likes to tell that story. I. Uh, yeah, and this is Shiwi before Shiwi yes, even yes, had that connotation. Yes. yes. Uh, so we had a mascot, and the mascot was one of those kiwis that you can buy in a tourist shop that you, and it wasn't actually wearing a rugby outfit, but then you could unzip it, turn it the other way, and it was a rugby ball. So that was our mascot on one of our trips, and we. We put, painted some false eyelashes on it and put a little silver fern on the jersey and named this Kiwi Shiwi. Uh, and so that was, the Shiwi was with us for the tour. And a really funny story about that is that we were staying with the Welsh team, and this was in 1998, in the same hotel. And the Welsh were just hilarious. They would play uh, pranks on us and all sorts of things. And um, this was in the day of videos. So, video, so we saw this video cassette and it was sent to us and it said, play this at a team meeting. So we put it into the um, video player and on the screen were these two women dressed completely in black with funny Welsh accents. And there was our mascot, Shiwi, who'd been um, taped to a chair and they were shining lights in her eyes and they were saying, tell us the New Zealand secrets, what makes them win? Uh, and then they turned to the camera and I said, give us um, give us $1,000 or the Kiwi gets it. <laughs> and recorded it and everything. So, you know, I think we, we managed to get her back, and we um, but we were stubborn, so we didn't want to just give them a black jersey. That's what they wanted, actually, not money. They wanted a black jersey. And we said, no, you have to earn your black jersey. So this carried on for a few days. Then we did a porphyry. We said, oh, we want to learn about your culture. You can learn about our culture. Let's get together. So we said, we'll do a porphyry. And said, when you do a porphyry, you have to take your shoes off. So all of the Welsh women took their shoes off and went inside for the porphyry. And while they were going through what we decided would be a really long porphyry, we stole all their shoes and um, said, you don't get your shoes back till we get Shiwi back. And they were just as stubborn as us. And apparently their coaches said they tried to train in other shoes that were not appropriate for a day. And they said, this is ridiculous. We've got to stop this. So we had a exchange of shoes for Shiwi. And we signed a treaty to say that we wouldn't do anything else. So <laughs> So there's a story behind Shiwi that is beyond what it now currently means. Um, but, yes, that was one of the names that was suggested for our team. So luckily we didn't go with that. 
Yeah, how fun. What a great story. You must reflect on times like that and, um, you know, what great memories you have of, of times like that. And, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, Shiwi means a lot different these days. And I'm sure when you came back to New Zealand, if they, if the, you know, the rugby union had gone on to do a marketing research analysis um, on the name Shiwi, they hopefully would have, uh, you know, voided it as well. Yeah. But, um, you know, with... Yeah, you know, the things like you know the 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 hacker that you created and all that you, you had had a part in with the um, you know with helping you know being part of naming of the, the the black ferns and then you know with the provincial cup now being simply just named after you you know you're almost the the godmother of rugby in New Zealand. Do you feel <laughs> like that at all? You know, it, 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 I say that respectfully. Yeah, yeah, no, it is weird, and you know, and I and I always want to acknowledge that there were amazing women that went for me. Like I've already mentioned, Sue Garden Bishop, um, Helen Littleworth. You know, she was the captain in 1994 when they couldn't go to the World Cup because it wasn't sanctioned by the IRB. You know, and all of those sacrifices and challenges that those women have faced. So I'm just part of this whakapapa. and if putting my name on a on a on a cup is going to help to lift the profile of women's rugby then I you know I resist it initially um, and then I end up giving up because people tell me no no this is going to be helpful to women's rugby so I said okay and so I'm willing to kind of like put myself in those positions now just to kind of continue to add to the whakapapa of women's rugby um, you know, and, and, and acknowledge the manner of all those people that have gone before that have struggled in the darkness, you know, and haven't had these opportunities. And now here we are with a little bit more of a higher profile. Yeah, so I'll yeah. accept the godmother tag if that helps. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, I certainly think it's um, it's earned as well. And you know, like any great leader that I've ever interviewed or talked to, it's that um, you know very complimentary of every all the people that you had had around you. Um, what was it like when you when you decided to retire? Because you know you you know you talk about these these things that you've done and been involved in. You, you, know, you tell stories like that. You just did about the Welsh, and I can I can see yeah. and hear the genuine you know joy and delight in your voice. And you know it was it's obviously a big part of you. You know, and there was yes. a it was such a transformative time. Time for um, you know for sport as a whole, but obviously of course for for women's sport and women's rugby, um, and then and then you know, after eleven years you you decide to retire. Um, you know what what was that like? Oh, it was a decision that I probably made over a couple of years. Um, you know, my whole thing is I may not be the best player, but I always felt that I deserved to be there because I had the skills and the physicality that was required. So as I was um, getting on, I was finding it harder to recover from injuries. I was finding it harder to make sure that I reached those standards that were expected. Um, My shoulder was starting to play up a little bit and I felt that I don't know how many more years I can keep doing this. So in 2005, I had to make a decision. I did play in the early part of 2005 but then later in the year, I had to say, oh, look, I can't put my name forward for the team. My shoulder's just not right. So I had to stand down for an end of year kind of game. And that was quite hard. I remember that the game was being televised. Uh, Anna Richards was the captain and I couldn't watch. I just had to go for a run. And I just went down to the Manawatu, 
Manawatu River and just ran as fast as I could just um, for an hour until I thought the game would probably be finished now. So I just, you know, it was really, really tough for me to have to admit that my body wasn't able to, to match my enthusiasm and passion. And so that was probably a turning point for me. And then I realised, right, I'm going to see what I can do. I can see, I'm going to see if I can get back into the team. I'm going to leave it up to the selectors to choose me or not choose me, depending on what they thought. So in 2006, I knew this is going to be my last year. I'm going to try and finish on a high at a Rugby World Cup. And um, I just trained probably the hardest I had ever trained in that um, off-season between 2005, 2006. So I always knew uh, that that would be my final year. I announced it in the media. I told team members that this is it. I'm finished after this. And, and I started to delegate more. So I started to get people to get up and do the speeches afterwards and someone else to lead the haka, someone else to lead the wata, someone else to talk to the media because I don't want to be leaving somebody in in a position where they're like, gosh, what do we do? So I really wanted to try and make that changeover as, as seamless as possible. And um, I cried my eyes out um, when we had the night before my final game. And in the game, I remember um, being at the bottom of a ruck. We were just ahead. Like if England had scored, we would probably would have lost. So I'm at the bottom of this rack and we're in overtime. The ref would not blow the whistle for some reason. I think it was 82 minutes on the on the clock. And I was like, come on, ref, when are we finishing? And she'd say, one more play. So I'm at the bottom of the rack. I'm winded. Um, I think their winger tried to run through me, thank goodness, not around me. Uh, so I'm there and I'm thinking, where's the ball, where's the ball? I get up and I see Amelia Marsh. Uh, now at Midia Rule, running down the other sideline and smashing their fullback out of the road and scoring. And that was the final, final play. And I just remember thinking, yes, we've done it. Um, I can step away from the team knowing that we've, I've done, I'm completely spent. <laughs> I've got nothing left. And the team has won another World Cup. So it was a lovely um, moment to finish on. Um, and I left with no regrets. Yeah, yeah, I'm certainly leaving it all out there as um, as all anyone can want. But what was it like, um, you know, after that? You know, and and uh, you know, you, you obviously the team and the, the, the it was so obviously a part of who you were. You know, doing anything for eleven years, it's going to be a part of you. And then, I mean, obviously you've been very involved in in, in rugby and sport afterwards. But um, you know, was it? The reason I ask is I, I do a, we do a bit of work with um, with a, with a charity here, and um, we deal with you know young people that are very talented. And, and one thing that we're conscious of is is making sure that people are um, they know that they are not what they do. You know that it's more than you, you're not you know you're not Farrah the rugby player, but the, but this is just something that you do, and you're a, you've got all these other strings to your bow, and um you know and I, so the, the the intent of my question, I guess, is is did you did you find it hard in any way to to step away from that environment and still and not feel like you were missing a part of yourself in any way? And if so, how how did you do that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that was actually something that I always had in the back of my mind. And I think I um, I didn't want to be known just as a rugby player. And that's why I really stuck with my studies. And when the, 
the going got tough, I would kind of want to give up my PhD and just focus on rugby. And then I would think to myself, no, you're just... And as a Māori as well, I had done a lot of research into Māori's perceiving themselves as sporty and only good at physical things and not good at at intellectual law, you know. And so I really wanted to challenge those stereotypes and I really wanted to make sure that I was setting myself up so that I didn't kind of put all my eggs in the in the athlete identity. Um, that was a really conscious effort on my behalf to make sure that I did my studies and I had something else that I was doing as well as playing rugby. And I and I actually encouraged, I, I did a bit of a stint as a player development manager for the Otago uh, men's team. And that was a real passion of mine. You may be playing rugby right now, but it's not going to be there forever. What else are you going to do? You know, I encourage you to do some studies or do an apprenticeship or uh, invest what you're earning and and have something to fall back on. Because I do agree with you. I think that's a huge thing that we struggle with, especially in rugby, where we've got a lot of players who have just totally invested in rugby and don't have anything else to to attach their identity to. So it was a conscious effort on my behalf. So I think I did that transition really well because I had Massey uh, to fall back on and I had a go at other things and realised I was terrible at them. I did a year on code on Māori TV as a panellist. I was hopeless. I tried coaching, so I helped coach my club team. I was okay at it, but I found it exhausting. Like I'm actually a, an introvert and being a coach requires you to be quite extroverted and I would feel exhausted after training and I realised this isn't how I get my my buzz, Um, but I gave two years back to my club. I tried being a PDM, which was a player development manager, loved that, but that's when I got pregnant. So my life carried on. I, I was lucky because I did have that backup of having my career at Massey and having my qualifications and I decided to look at what else I could do um, with those skills and those networks that I'd created. Mm, I think you're being very nice saying that you're lucky. You know, I don't think doing a PhD in the background is, is <laughs> lucky by any means, um, you know. And and it just seems like from listening to what you're saying there, it seems like you just had this, um, which a, a number of really good leaders seem to have, is that, that self-awareness, that ability to sort of reflect on yourself and, and sort of see, hey, look, this is what I, this is where I'm at, this is what's going to happen and and sort of the ability to think about what what's what am I good at and, and, and try different things and have a go which you talked about you had sort of from a very young age, but it's that sort of, um, you know, you, you, you all know Gilbert Anoka, but I've, I've heard yes. him, he talks uh, self-awareness is the master skill. Yeah, and I think you can you can easily kind of like listen to everyone praising you all the time and kind of like your ego just gets inflated. But to me, that's not healthy and that's often when you'll get tripped up. So I'm very conscious of that. I'm very conscious of surrounding myself with people that will tell me the truth. My husband's pretty good at that. Um, You know, listening to my family who just want what's best for me. So I think it's about just checking yourself every now and then and not believing everything you read or everything that is said to you and just saying, I know myself better than anyone else and, and this is what I need right now. So... Yeah, and the other thing too was it was a struggle doing my PhD. I almost gave up on that a couple of times. 
then I would go back to Pio Pio and um, stay on the farm trying to figure out if I want to carry on and my mum and dad would con- come in because I don't know about you when you're writing sometimes you just have to think and they go are you finished yet I'd be like no I'm not finished and then my mum said well she was a cleaner at the primary school and she'd say well come and help me clean the primary school because I need your help so I would put my PhD down and go and help her after a day of polishing floors, dusting lampshades, pulling staples out of the wall, I said to mum, I think I'm going to go back and finish my PhD. And she said, good idea. <laughs> so, just that pragmatic way that my mum kind of got to me and she knew yeah. what she was doing. You Mum's know, you're no. lucky. She said, you're fortunate. You know, you had that opportunity of an education that she didn't have. So stop feeling sorry for yourself and get back in there and finish that PhD. Mums always have a beautiful way of sort of, you know, kicking you in the right direction when you need it, don't they? Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you said there about sort of not listening to. I had um, uh, Marlon uh, from 660 on here. And so we talked a lot about that, you know, about, you know, perception of yourself in terms of what other people are saying. And he had a really good um, way of looking. He said, he said, I just, I don't listen to either side he said because you can't listen to the positive and ignore the negative and you can't listen to the negative and ignore the positive and he said if you are going to listen then you have to take both and you have to say well you know these people are praising me but also these people are criticizing me and he said that um you know they realized that you know relatively he realized that relatively early on but he said yeah you can't have one or the other you can't say i'm just going to listen to all the good people because it gives you that sort of inflated version of 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 maybe your ability your skills of where you're at but he also said it's not how Helpful listening to the negative side either. So he they just he just personally doesn't listen to anything, doesn't read any articles, any reviews, and that was able to you know that's how he's able to maintain you know that awareness of self a bit more. Um, and obviously, yeah. it's important. I think it's important to have yeah, like you said, the trusted people. You know, you, you need you do need people in your life that that can tell you things that aren't always easy to hear. But at the same time, if you trust them and you listen to them, when they do tell you something good, it means a lot more as well because you know that it's authentic and it's real and maybe you have actually done a really good job. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the thing, though. You're in a circle, they can kind of tell you it as it is. Um, yeah, and I, and I agree that but I'm probably lucky that in my job at Massey, you know, students have to do evaluations of your teaching at the end of the of every semester. So that can be quite blunt, but you usually get your lovers and your haters. So somewhere in the middle is usually where you are. So you'll get some that will just absolutely think you're amazing and some that will point out things that you, you didn't do so well. And it hurts initially, but then you go, well, they've got a point there. You know, those are some of my tendencies, so I need to work on those. But also focusing on your strengths. And that's what I've realised too is you can spend a lot of time on your weaknesses, but if you actually work on your strengths and keep improving those, then you'll make lots more kind of leaps and, and bounds. And that's what I'm trying to focus on is acknowledging that I've got limitations, but focusing on my strengths and seeing how I can ex- stretch those and expand on those. Yeah, that's a, a really good point, you know, because there's, there's really two schools of thought in that in that regard. And I've actually spoken to a number of people about it is, you know, do you double down on your strengths and focus on what you're good at and try and be, you know, world class at that? Or do you try and work on your weaknesses? And, you know, there's, there's, there's positive sides to both of it. But 
ultimately, I agree with you. I think I think that if if you have a natural ability at doing something really well, you know, I think why not double down on that, triple down on that, you know, and be the world's best at whatever that is, and um, which may be a very unique niche skill, but still that's valuable. And then rather than trying to go out and you know. You know, fix all these things that you don't do quite well. Like, you know, we're in a business, for example, and so, you know, there's some things that, that you know, we're good at and some things that we're not. And, you know, I tend to find that let's do more things that I'm good at and either delegate or, um, you know, find someone else to help with the things that yeah. are not. And the, the organisation as a whole tends to do better. Yeah, and I think that's probably, for me, how I think a rugby team operates. You know, not, not everybody is good at, at all of the skills, and if you do identify a weakness that you have, I think you shouldn't use that as an excuse, but you should you should be aware of it, but you should also have people around you that that, that is their strength. And I think collectively you'll all be um, much better off. So, yeah, I, I, I do think that there's an element of both. Like for me, being on the board, um, the financial side of things kind of boggles my brain sometimes. So I really struggle in that, but I do institute of director courses and make sure that I've got the basics. I understand the basics. I understand the words and the terms that are used and what we're aiming to do, but I don't necessarily think that that's a strength of mine. But I've got just enough knowledge to be able to hold my own. Yeah, yeah, and you're dead right there. I think that's the the right, the right and particularly in, in a business sense, and in a, in a, particularly at a governance level, it's you need to be understanding the conversation that's happening around the room, so you're clued up yeah. in the and the high level stuff. But at the same time, there'll be other people on those boards whose you know numbers is their thing, and they can you yes. know look at a look at a spreadsheet and it you know um, and they know exactly what's going on. But then you know your 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 strength seem to be you know in 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 in, in humans and culture and and that sort of stuff, leadership. So you know they yeah. probably look at something like that and. And, and you know it's, it's different for them. So let's talk about your sort of you know your, your career after that um, because you know you, you seem to focus you know on you know and correct me if I'm wrong just from from the research I've done sort of on on governance roles and, and your sort of academic career um, and and from what I can tell that sort of seems to be concentrated around race gender and leadership issues in sport. Is that is that correct? And if so, what does that mean? Yeah, good question. Uh, yeah, so I, I, as I told you, I tried a few other things when I retired as a player and didn't quite gel with me. And then I got a position on the Māori Rugby Board as one of the board members, and that's probably was where I kicked off with my governance career. And then a position came up on the um, NZR board and thought, why not give that a go? So for me, you know, I, when you ask me what were the highlights from my team, it's things that will be a legacy, things that will carry on. And for me, that's kind of what governance is like too. It's like how do we set up systems? How do we ensure that this, this whole organisation is humming so that we can get some wins on the rugby field, but also we have more women and girls. And I think back to when I was a young teenager in Pio Pio, and I remember thinking, what is the purpose of life? Why am I here? And one of the things I really wanted to do was to make a difference. Sounds really corny. <laughs> but I wanted to make a difference to women and Māori. So those have been two things that have been really, really key for me throughout all that I've done. And so I've been able to do that, I think, in rugby. I've been able to do that at Massey. And now in governance, that's what I'm passionate about. So I am passionate about... Um, providing 
opportunities and pathways for Māori and women, be that through leadership roles, be that through playing, be that through using rugby as a way to try and get people to think about other options in life. Uh, so, yeah, diversity is all about, for me, trying to see things from a different perspective as well um, and learning from different perspectives that people have. And I'm a true believer in diversity of thought creates a better outcome. Um, you know, forwards and backs think differently. So do people on a board table. And when we do have those robust discussions, that's when we get a better outcome. So I think that's what drives me. Um, once again, I'm working to my strengths. I, uh, As a Māori woman, I think that those are areas I can contribute to, but I'm not, I'm not denying that there are other ethnicities or other diversities that can also be brought to the table. I'm no longer young. You know, I probably could have brought a, a youth voice, but I'm no longer that. So, you know, that's somebody else's kaupapa to focus on. And I'm, I'm trying to use the, the networks and the experiences that I've had to bring about change. So for me, that's through sport and that's through rugby and through my university career. Yeah. And so what are you trying to change? You know, like I remember my question probably is, is you know, like I said, from, from what I've read, it's, uh, the, the, or the, the phrase that I read was, was um, concentrated around race, gender, uh, race, gender and leadership issues in sport. So, you know, what are, what are you know, again, from a very sort of um, naive point of view, what, is, what are some of the issues that, that you're trying to work with? So, for instance, in sport, we're trying, I've got a few PhD students who are looking at women and girls in sport and, and leadership in particular and the pathways for women into governance in particular. So how can we look at what are the systems and what are the policies and what do we need to do in order to create more options for women to go into those roles? Because at the moment, we're underrepresented in those leadership roles. Um, in terms of Māori, it's about acknowledging uh, the tiriti and, um, you know, taking organisations on a bicultural journey uh, here in Aotearoa, but also acknowledging that we could learn things in business by looking at things from a slightly different perspective, like you think about ESG and, and how that probably reflects a te ao Māori perspective around the environment and sustainability and what we're doing and how you can then take that worldview and help your business. So it's it's having a wider impact as well. So it's not only benefiting Māori, it's not only benefiting women. I think it's about benefiting organisations and businesses by looking at things in a slightly different way. So I try to do in my rugby role, I try to actually put that into practice. And then in my university role, I get a chance to sit back and do the theorising and the analysing and the exploring. So I feel like the two parts of my life work quite well together. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of synergy there in what you're doing, particularly, you know, when you talk about, you know, you always hear the phrase, you know, find your why. You know, one of my questions was there was, was what are you passionate about? But you've sort of been able to articulate it and find it, you know, relatively, you know, whether you knew it maybe when you were playing rugby, but at least now you're able to articulate and figure out exactly what it is you're, you're, you're trying to do. And, I, you know, I couldn't agree more about the, you know, the di diversity is, um, you know, quite a sort of hot word at the moment, you know, and, and I've done a couple of the Institute of Directors courses as well. And, um, you know, particularly when you talk about, you know, a boardroom table, but that, that can be a metaphor for almost any, you know, any organisation, right, is that having that, um, having different opinions, you're never going to, you know, if you, if you're, 
if you want to go somewhere different, you've got to do things you've never done. And if you want to do things you've never done, you've got to think things you don't normally think. And the general way to, to be able to do that is to have people who are different or, or from, from or traditionally you know, come from different places. And I think that um, one of the things, one of the key things I took away from that was that, yeah, you can't expect to go somewhere new if you're, unless you're thinking differently. And diversity of thought is the, is the, is the best way to, to encourage that. And one thing you talked about um, – you know, because I've been doing a bit of reading about sort of, um, you know, there's two different forms of equality, equality of, of, or inclusion, you know, equality of opportunity or equality of outcome. And they, they seem quite different. And, and you spoke about equality of opportunity, which seems to be, from what I've read, seems to be the, 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 the best way to go around trying to um, encourage uh, and, and increase diversity. Is that, is that right? Well, I think it's a it's a pipeline. So I think you do definitely need to give people the opportunity to get around the table or be in the decision-making roles. That's not always going to be everything. And I think equity of outcome is what we're all aiming for. Um, and it's much easier to do that if you've got people around the table that are, are also on that waka and who also can see that there's some benefits in that. So it's a challenge, you know, like in rugby, we've we've always got a limited amount of resources and where does it get allocated? And you can kind of put a whole lot into women's rugby and you might not get an increase in participation. So, you know, it's about how do we get that equity of outcome in terms of um, opportunities for people to play, opportunities for them to progress through the levels, opportunities for them to get into refing, coaching, administration, governance, and seeing that they have options as well, rather than just seeing them as a, a tick box that you can actually contribute back to the organisation in a variety of ways. So equity, equality, slightly different. Um, you know, so looking at that as well in terms of it's not just about having equal numbers of or 40% gender diversity around the board table. It's also about, you know, are they actively engaging? Are they contributing? Are they able to um, voice their opinion? Do they feel welcome? Um, are there activities that they could do that they could kind of be the champion for and seeing if we can bring about real change? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, are things improving? You know, like you've been, you've been, you know, your, your PhD was in, in 2000, you know, it's, it's yeah. I don't, that's a, a wee while ago now, no, and, and respectful, uh, respectfully a while ago. That's all right. You know, are, are, are things, you know, are you, are you, I mean, obviously we know that, you know, when we look at sport, for example, you know, we've already talked about the, the way that the, 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 the sport has, has developed um, from, you know, from when you were playing to now. Um, are you seeing, you know, race and gender, um, you know, issues in, in all sort of in all the formats that you're working in improving as a whole? Yeah, it's interesting because you, you can, I can see changes and the changes are probably at that philosophical uh, strategic level, whether they've got down to making an impact at the, at the ground or the grassroots is still to be seen, especially like with my Massey Associate Dean hat on. It's really interesting. Massey made a statement that we would be a Tiriti-led institution, and that caused a bit of a furor because nobody understood what that meant and, you know, what does that actually mean? And so it's my role as Associate Dean to try and help the Massey Business School, my colleagues, to understand what that means, you know, and you can kind of simplify it down to the whole, the, the principles of participation, protection and partnership, but it's much more complex than that. 
And I've said to my colleagues that I want you guys to be at least understanding of why we're on this journey and then figuring out how, depending on where you're at and your understanding, what little changes we can make to your teaching, how we can incorporate it into your research, how we look at how you engage with your um, with stakeholders or your students or each other, and how can we make those subtle changes to bring about significant organisational change. And we're on that journey. I would say that it's at this stage we still haven't had an impact on um, our Māori student success rates. We're still trying to improve those. And it's, when you try and make system change, it can be quite complex. So there's little things that we're doing. We haven't quite seen whether it's having an impact. Now, when I go to my sports side, I can see that Sport New Zealand is really kind of trying to embrace what it means to be a tiriti led uh, crown entity um, so that's probably way more forward along in that journey than say rugby and rugby has recently done a strategic launch for NZ Rugby and Māori Rugby so that's the first time we've done our strategic launches at the same time and have acknowledged that we want to be on a bicultural journey so that's the first step and then we're now figuring out what that actually means and how integrated do we put a Māori worldview or Māori context into everything that we do at NZ Rugby? It's already, Māori culture is already embedded in rugby, but is it at all the levels? Like, do we have uh, leadership? Do we have Māori involved in the, in, the, in the staffing side of NZR? We've got 40% or 30% of our player base are Māori, um, but that's not the same when you move through through the ranks. Mm. Yeah, and one of my questions, well, firstly, yeah, I mean, like you're talking about a, you know, essentially a paradigm shift, you know, and kind of and what's required, and that's never going to be quick um, or, or easy, but it certainly sounds like and, and appears, you know, from 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 at least an outside perspective to be to be you know changing. Um, but the my question was around sort of. Um, you know, the role of culture and sport. And I, I guess, you know, w w there's a lot of similarities between, say, sport and business, you know, and, um, you know, the, the, you know, the All Blacks do a lot in it, you're, you know, like the, and you, you see a lot in the, you know, and like I said, in the, in the, in the, in the um, you know the, the player base, and I know that the that the the All Blacks do a lot in, about sort of connection and about you know how they you know where they come from and what it means and 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 all that. But um, you mentioned before, but there's it's my, 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 oh, I'll let you answer the question actually. What's the benefit of doing that? You know, like what's the is it about is it about um, acknowledging that it's a part of our culture, or is it um, is it because that collectively then can can unite more people and and, and bring us to to make us better, or is there something else, or is it a combination of things? I think it's about acknowledging that it's part of our culture, and I think rugby already does that. But I think for me, uh, it's about saying, why are we only using it for window dressing, for instance, versus making it integrated into everything so that Māori don't necessarily just feel proud that their culture is being represented through the haka, but that they can also be proud that there are Māori that are working within the organisation and that are in leadership roles within the organisation rather than just being kind of the workers you know what I mean? So it's about how do we integrate it and do I think that's going to benefit the organisation? Yes, I do think it will benefit the organisation because you'll get more, if you want to 
come from a completely business-focused way, we'll get more people that potentially want to invest in the sport. You'll, um, you know, we could potentially have iwi that want to have a partnership with New Zealand Rugby and, and invest in it. You'll see more people wanting to let their children uh, play the sport if they can see that it reflects them. So I think there's some benefits from a business perspective if we do make it a more integrated system in terms of gender and for me, um, Māori in particular, but also acknowledging Pacifica and the key role that they play now in rugby. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, look, and, and if I'm completely honest, you know, like I, you know, you're you're genuinely an expert in this sort of stuff, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I can't even articulate a question that I feel like is, uh, you know, is, is going to uh, allow you to, you know, really talk about this. But um, I want to finish up with with a, with a couple of sort of questions, and one is is where is your attention at the moment? Like what, what, are, what's next? What's what? I mean, maybe you sort of answered that and what we've just been talking about, but you know, I'm always interested to see what, what people are thinking about. What are you, what are you trying to solve at the moment? What do you see as, as, as the next opportunity for, for yourself or in the work you're doing? It's a really good question because I do think I'm at a bit of a crossroads. Uh, I'm 49, so I'll be turning 50 this year. And I think that is always a a moment to reflect on and think about what have I done and what am I going to do the next couple couple of decades. So I think for me, I've been focused on, because I was the first female to get onto the board, I wanted to leave knowing that I'm not the last or the only female on the board. So I've been working on systems and processes within the organisation to ensure that when I do leave, that there'll be systems in place that will allow other women to also see this as an option and perhaps potentially have an easier time of getting onto the board, um, not waiting for a crisis in the sport for them to put a female on on the board. So that's the kind of thing I've been focusing on. I've been really focusing on my role as chair of the Māori Rugby Board to get the Māori Rugby Board uh, ramping along and I feel like we are getting there and I'm really proud of how I've tried to integrate members of the Māori Rugby Board into what's happening within NZ Rugby. I've got Doug Jones who's been involved with the Silver Lake negotiations. I've got Mere Kingi who's involved in the commercial side trying to get more partnerships. So that's been really positive. So I feel like those are really positive things. Once again, thinking about when I leave, all these things still be going rather than just having to rely on me as a figurehead that they are going to be able to do this sweet um, into the future. Yeah, yeah. So so what next? I'm actually not sure. You know, I'm, I'm really excited about my Sport New Zealand governance role. Um, I'm probably keen to go back to my university kind of role and sink my teeth into a couple of research projects. Haven't been able to do that. I've been a light touch um, helping out PhD students for the last couple of years. And so I'd really like to sink my teeth into a a Marsden fund that we've got that looks at sport for development in uh, Fiji and here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And my colleagues have been really patient with me waiting for me to be uh, involved for that. So that's where I'm at. I still really feel like I'm about trying to make a difference and trying to do what I can um, for women and Māori in particular. That's still a driving passion for me. 
maybe focus on my family. Uh, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's exciting. I mean, you know, it's kind of, you know, I, I had the question written down, but we kind of answered it at the start anyway, was why do you think you've done so well? And I, I think with the, you know, the exciting thing, you know, you've got that underlying sort of attitude and anyone, you know, the, the attitude and and, um, and and mindset and way of looking at problems and issues. Um, and it's kind of exciting when you think like that because it gives you the opportunity to sort of go anywhere, you know, and that's why I wanted to ask you that question because you kind of, you know, the, the you know, you talk about going into the, maybe a next stage, but, you know, the reality is, is you know, there's, there's so many things that could be doing and like, I, I can't wait to follow it and see what that, that becomes. But I've got two things to finish up. Um, and the first one is is what are you most proud of? We talked a little bit about your career before, but you've done so much stuff, and you've 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 you know I heard you you were described as a trailblazer in one of the um, articles I, I written about you, and uh, that was written about you. And um, you know when you look back on a on a on a you know on your career to date, on your life to date, you know is there something that stands out that that you know that you're really really proud of? Gosh, um, I well, there's these moments that I think this is the this is the pinnacle of what I could have achieved, and then something else happens, and I go, oh, actually, this is kind of a pinnacle of what I'm. I'm so proud of this moment, and there's just little things like I think finishing my PhD, which was a struggle, was a huge moment for me, um, more for my family, being the first in my family to go to university and to not just go to uni, but to to do a PhD and to see the pride on my family's faces. That was really, really cool. Um, and it's sad as well because my grandparents weren't there. They passed away before I finished. So that was a significant moment. Um, and then I think when I left the Black Ferns, knowing that when I left the Black Ferns as a player, that they were in a much better place and that they were well established as a team, that felt really, really good leaving on that note and knowing that this team will be okay and that they won't disappear. Uh, and then being the first woman to get onto the New Zealand rugby board, I, I kind of didn't really think about it too much. And then on the day that I was being inducted onto the board, my family met me outside the building and, and we went through a kind of like a mihi whakatau pōwhiri process and they, they walked me into the meeting, which was quite an emotional moment. And that made me realise it's not just about me. You know, it's about everyone else that feels that I'm representing them, whether that's metaphorically or whatever, but that's when I realised I'm the first, but I don't want to be the last and I don't want to be the only. So, yeah, those are three moments. And, of course, I don't know, having children just, you know, humbles you. <laughs> you might be able to handle things around a board table, but with your own children, it's just a different kettle of fish. So being a mother and uh, having them challenge me every day is something I'm really proud of. Yeah, totally. A pooey nappy is a pooey nappy, whether you're a world famous, <laughs> you know, rugby player or, a, or just anyone. They, exactly. they um, yeah, and it's yeah. Children are a great humbler, I find, you know, like, and, um, you know, a, a lot of people mention children when I answer that question. And, um, you know, those three things you talked about, you know, I mean, you used the word legacy before, but, um, you know, what a, 
tremendous you know impact you've had to date and again I, I look forward to, to seeing you know what comes next and my last question is is it's quite a broad one but what do you wish everybody knew you know if, if, if the entire world was going to listen to the next 60 seconds of this and and you were to leave something behind that you think would that would make you know a difference in, in people's lives and, and, and what they do you know if you're going to give a, a little bit of advice if you could put a billboard up that the whole world was going to read and at the bottom of it would say your name, you know, what would you write on it? What would you say? I'm terrible at these one-liners. Um, <laughs> I probably have in the back of my mind this saying that a trainer said to me once. He said, finish strong and rest later. And that's kind of probably been my motto is whatever you do, give it, give it heaps, give it, you know, do what you can. And then when it's done, it's done and you can rest later. And I think, I don't know if that's going to be something that's going to be groundbreaking for anyone, but that's really how I've approached all the aspects of my life is to finish strong and rest later. Yeah, oh, that's a beautiful way to, to, to end it. And, um, you know, like the simple things often are the, you know, the golden nuggets, you know, it's, there's no secret to success is kind of what we, we end up coming down to that there's, there's a, there's a recipe that involves, you know, a bit of hard work, a bit of luck, you know, a bit of, um, you know, resilience and, you know, some good people around you and, um, you know, and a few other, you know, key elements, but, um, you know, certainly jumping in and, and, and giving it your all is, you know, you're never going to um, put yourself in a worse position for doing that. So, um, Farah Palmer, I'm hugely grateful for your time today. I know you've got a lot on you. wear so many hats and, and to sit down and talk with me today is a, is a, is a, is a huge privilege and I'm, and I'm honoured to talk to the, the godmother of rugby in New Zealand. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thanks, but, um, I'm, I'm really, really grateful to have you and I know that um, the work you're doing is, um, is tremendous. You're, you're hugely passionate about what you're doing and, um, you know, I think that, that term trailblazer is, um, is, is, is fitted for, for you know, the, the way you've lived your life and I think that your, your legacy will um, live on you know, far past you and I when, um, you know, when there's things like huckers and, and, and New Zealand teams and competitions but also the, the impact that the, the, the lives of, of people will be different because of the work that you're doing now as well. So thank you so much for your time. I'm really grateful and I look forward to following your journey from here on. Thanks, Maddie, and thanks for your challenging questions. You know, I'll go away from this thinking about those, so much appreciated. And there we go, Dr. Farah Palmer. What an amazing human being. Like, the, you know, we listed her accomplishments at the start there, but, um, you know, for everything she's achieved, she is so humble and so down to earth and, uh, you know, so intelligent and thoughtful and, um, you know, just such a, an amazing opportunity to spend some time with her and to talk to her. So thank you so much to her for, for making the time uh, to chat with me today. But also thank you to you for making the time to listen. You know, it really means the world to me that people listen to these episodes and listen to the, the wisdom and, and, and advice and insights that someone like, um, you know, Farrah Palmer shares and um, you know it really does mean the world to me that you, you take the time so thank you very much and if you did take something out of today's episode if you do one of three things one would be to subscribe or like the podcast wherever you're listening to it right now just hit like or subscribe and you'll get the latest episodes as they come out the second thing you could do would be to leave a rating or review again we are listening to it right now just leave a rating or review it helps the podcast grow and the third thing would be just to share it tell someone to go and check out the Road to Success podcast on either Spotify or 
or Apple Podcasts and they can listen to this episode or any of the other episodes. And if you want to share this one directly, again, where you're listening to it right now, just hit the share button and you can send it to them directly. So a huge thanks to you, a huge thanks to Dr. Farah Palmer, and of course, a huge thanks to Celebrity Speakers as well. Celebrity Speakers have come on as a sponsor for this season of the Road to Success podcast and it's just made my job so easy. As it would make your job easy if you are looking for a speaker for your next event. Obviously, uh, Dr. Farah Palmer is one of their speakers, but they have a whole host of speakers. You can find them all online at celebritiespeakers.co.nz and you can uh, find one you like, you can work with their friendly team and they can help make sure your next event is one to remember. So again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much to Dr. Farah Palmer. Thank you so much to Celebrity Speakers. But most of all, thank you so much to you. Love you. See ya. Bye.